The Israeli president is set to give former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu the mandate to form a new Israeli government. After consultations with representatives from all parties in the 25th Israeli parliament, also known as the Knesset, Israel's longest serving prime minister is then expected to form the most right wing Israeli government in its history as tensions build in both the West Bank and Eastern Jerusalem. Which brings us to the question today of how we got here and what may happen next. Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst is Maddie Field. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Joshua Axton. Hi, Josh. Hey, Drew. It's great to be on today. Thank you for coming on. All right, guys, I want to start off with the background of the situation, of course, and I'll turn to you, Maddie, as the domestic analyst and kind of ask you to overview what governmental system does Israel have? So Israel, much like kind of Britain, is a parliamentary democracy. In the Knesset, which as you mentioned earlier is the parliament, laws are debated and made. So the people elect representatives to the Knesset from their favorite parties, but they don't do this by directly voting for people, but rather voting for their favorite party. And then the votes from the party are then divided up into the 120 seats in the Knesset and proportioned accordingly. The prime minister, again, is not voted on, but rather he's the party leader who has the best chance of pulling together a diverse coalition. There is no presidential election, although there is a president. The president of the state, Isaac Herzog, is a ceremonial role, sort of like the queen, and more, again, as a head of state. The executive power is really in the hands of the prime minister. So he is elected to the Knesset for a single seven-year term. So Israel's politics are traditionally very varied. In the mid-2000s and in the last coalition, there were eight parties represented in this diverse coalition, but each party must get at least 3.25% of votes to be allowed in. I just have a question to follow up on that, Maddie. You mentioned the comparison to the United Kingdom. However, the United Kingdom, although it has multiple parties, has kind of like two mainland parties in the Labour and the Tory. Do you see that with Israel as much, or is that just there's a wide range of different parties? Exactly. There's a very wide range. While there are major parties, for example, some of them get voted out and some get voted in. So it's all about who can form that huge coalition. Looking at it, the prime minister is putting a coalition together. As mentioned before, the president has appointed the prime minister and given him the mandate to form a coalition. However, Netanyahu has served in the prime minister position before. Why was he put out of office or why did he retire from the position? Yeah, so that's a very complex situation. Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's been in power for 13 years. He's been a mainstay in Israeli politics for over two decades. So it took a lot to get him out of office last time. This was after the fourth presidential or parliamentary election that Israel has had in the past three and a half years. And it was all tied to a felony corruption case, which was the state of Israel versus Benjamin Netanyahu. So Netanyahu, he's been accused of bribery, fraud, breach of trust. He's been accused of providing official favors for wealthy businessmen in exchange for material and tangible gifts, meddling in judicial proceedings, and good positive media coverage. In November 2019, before he was kind of thrown out of office, he was indicted. His trial was delayed until May 2020, and he can remain in office until he's convicted. 
he has tried to overthrow kind of this trial. He said it's a sham. It's a left-wing plot to get him out of office and done. He said the police, prosecution, and liberal media are all colluding in an attempt to discredit him, really. He said that he won't use his authority to stop the legal process. But a lot of people in Israel believe that he's trying to get back into office in an attempt to be shielded from the, the negative effects or if he's convicted. His coalition partners, although he has not indicated that he wants to kind of get rid of this trial, his coalition partners have signaled otherwise, which really sets the stage for a, a dangerous ascension to power. And I actually do want to get into that ascension to power, Maddie, and like the coalition that he's forming both to do away with this case and the bribery charges and also the effects that this heavily right-leaning coalition will have. Did you have something to say, Josh, going into the coalition forming? Yeah, absolutely. So some of his coalition partners, for example, Ben Gavir, has campaigned on a promise to loosen the rules governing the use of live fire against Palestinians in the West Bank, saying, quote, it's time to untie the hands of our soldiers and police officers, end quote. And so when we see this religious orthodox coalition really come together, when people are saying that it's the most white ring government Israel's ever had, they're, they're not exaggerating. Netanyahu, for example, commented on the outgoing government, which for the first time in Israeli history included an Arab-Israeli party in its coalition and compared it to, quote, terrorist supporters and Muslim brothers with extremely negative connotations surrounding those. So, yeah, we mentioned like Ben Gavir is both like the head of this religious Zionist element of Netanyahu's coalition and these people are in favor of more aggressive policies, especially towards expanding settlements in the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip, and also with regards to the policies and the security forces and how they operate against the Palestinians in the region. Do you have anything to add on to the this formation that Netanyahu is about to undertake in forming a coalition within the Knesset, Maddie? Yeah, of course. So as Josh mentioned, Netanyahu is allied with these right-wing and religious parties, including these very far-right religious Zionist alliances with these extremist groups. Ben Gavir, the party that you were referencing earlier, and Likud, Netanyahu's party, have really embraced each other. Ben Gavir's leader displayed a picture of a settler who killed 29 Palestinians at a mosque in 1994. The far right has idolized people like this in their policies, which include supporting inequality among Jews and Arabs and advocate for deportation for disloyal citizens, limiting LGBT rights, are all just kind of an indication of how far Netanyahu is willing to go. The situation seems pretty dire for centrist and liberal Israelis, much like the situations in a lot of governments around the world. Former Minister Lapid has said, we're embarking on a parliamentary legal and civil struggle, and most of it is a fateful struggle for the future of the country. So while he's urged unity and opposition, Framing it as a fight for women's rights and religious separation, it's clear that there's there's going to be something big happening in Israeli politics soon. And sort of the main struggle has emerged around a proposed clause that Netanyahu wants to bring to the Knesset. It's called the Override Clause, and it would allow the Knesset, which again is the legislative body, to pass laws that have been struck down by the courts as violating quote-unquote the basic laws, which are an almost constitutional sort of laws that govern Israeli society. You said something to add on the override clause, Josh? Absolutely. I think it's a critical step for this, I mean, quite frankly, ultra-Orthodox party into creating a quote-unquote Torah state. Really, in a lot of ways, Jewish supremacy being the ultimate goal of their aims. Looking at the override clause, something specifically that they wanted with this was 
Yeshiva students to avoid mandatory conscription, which was struck down back in 2012 by the Supreme Court, is that this is a resurgence for them to be able to avoid conscription that way. And going back a little bit, something else I want to touch on really quick was looking at the state of Netanyahu coming to power with this ultra-Orthodox group and his coalition was analysts have said that actually Netanyahu, while extremely conservative, is able to be very careful about the use of force. Because as someone who's an extremely successful career politician, he's also able to look at foreign policy and how closely tied the treatment of Palestinians in Israel is tied to the relations with the rest of the Arab world. So you mentioned also, Josh, of how Netanyahu has been very careful and hasn't been able to come back into power despite the corruption charges by being very careful about the moves that he makes, in particular with the Palestinians, but also the fact that he's currently in government with more of the religious Zionists who are not as careful about how they are going to take actions in the West Bank or with the Palestinians. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier, Maddie, about Netanyahu defeated Prime Minister Yair Lapid and the kind of struggle for centrist and liberal Israeli parties in Israel right now. Yeah, so Lapid, I believe, was formerly the minister in the last coalition government, which fell apart. But his running has sparked controversy among the Israeli left. Much like in America, the Israeli left is deeply divided. The Labour Party, which is a major governing party, said that Lapid was selfishly campaigning for his own party, which is the Yeshatid Party. This, in turn, led to a fall in public support for them and Meretz's party, who fell below the threshold and then were then pushed out of the Knesset, leading to kind of this collapse of the coalition government. Before elections, Lapid had been in conflict with Defense Minister Benny Gatz, who was seen as a frontrunner for the election, and they'd argued about who was going to lead this new government. They urged a return to coordinated voting against Netanyahu's coalition basically saying that if we're going to do anything, we need to be against Netanyahu. But it has not been successful. As we've seen, the previous coalition completely fell apart. As we've said before, the coalition formation is what runs this government. So if the coalition is ineffective, they have to start anew. And Israel has had five elections in the past three and a half years. They've just constantly been going back to the polls. It, you know, if there's no majority, they have to go back to the polls again. So while Netanyahu was ousted last November, this government, which was headed by Naftali Bennett, fell apart because it had such a slim majority and strong, sustained right-wing attempts. So while, again, I've said before, this was an eight-party coalition and united against Netanyahu, it was like that's not enough to lead a government. There were deep divisions within this coalition on Palestinian statehood, the occupation of the West Bank, issues of religion and state. People began to defect, and in April, the coalition finally lost the majority, which meant it could no longer pass legislation. Sort of the death knell of this coalition was the settler law, which extends Israeli law to West Bank Israeli settlers. This was voted down in the Knesset, even though it's very, very popular among the Israeli populace, in a symbol of opposition. So once that happened, it was pretty clear that the government was going to fall apart. And since then, you know, Israelis had to go back to the polls and now they've elected this new government. <laughs> I think you draw an interesting point, Maddie, of like the consistent struggle for power there has been that it's kind of been hinged on the fact of those who oppose Netanyahu coming into office and those who support him and how five elections in the past three years and the way that the Israeli government and the Knesset is set up is to enforce that if you don't have a strong majority of government, 
your coalition is very fragile at best. Yeah, of course. Netanyahu's new coalition, he's he won 64 out of 120 seats, so it's pretty certain that he will soon arise to power. Last week, President Isaac Herzog, he began these formal cons- consultations with the parties in the Knesset to hear recommendations for who should form the next government. So we're pretty certain it's going to be he- him. Obviously, no guarantee, but basically what the Israeli left learned from the last year of politics is that a sense of opposition is not enough. They did not have a clear path forward. Mm-hmm. And they'll have to be united even much more than they were before to prevent Netanyahu from coming into office with both his skill and experience as a politician and the right seemed to be much more united than the left within Israel. Yep. Netanyahu is a dangerous politician and the Israeli left needs to become much more flexible in their approach to governing if they want any chance of getting him out again. Yep. I also want to focus on not just, you mentioned some of the reasons that the previous government fell apart and get into kind of under Lapid's coalition and the previous government under Netanyahu, their foreign policy and their regards to like a two-state solution and the settlement expansion of their policies on that. Do you want to go into that at all, Josh? Of course, I'll touch on the two-state solution. So Lapid, being a more liberal candidate, supports a two-state solution and sees it as the best way forward for peace in Israel and Palestine. Currently, though, only about 31% of all Israelis support a two-state solution. What's very interesting about this is 60% of Arab Israelis support a two-state solution. And so with Lapid trying to get a two-state solution pushed forward, it's not really popular. And so when you have an already weak coalition, it's extremely difficult to move forward with any consistency in foreign policy because other countries are looking in at Israel and seeing there's this extremely unstable government and we can't really get anywhere with our foreign policy. And so with Netanyahu coming back into power, at least foreign countries can say, hey, we don't agree with them, but at least we know what we're getting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Israeli pundits have said that voter turnout for Arab Israelis was extremely low, which is what allowed Netanyahu to get back into power. However, Lapid was hardly this liberal god, really. He also supported settler expansion. It's a wildly popular policy across Israel. Since the two-state solution had stalled, these settler expansions went forward while he was in government. Currently, although three million Palestinians kind of live in these settler areas, 4,400 new homes were approved for Israeli settlers over this time. There's allegations of apartheid, and it's just kind of further dividing Israel over this issue. Yeah. I also want to get into the foreign policy of both Prime Minister Netanyahu in the past and what he may do now, Josh, but also examine the differences between the previous government under Prime Minister Bennett. Do you think at all the religious Zionist element of Netanyahu's potential future coalition will change his foreign policy somewhat and how that will affect Israel's foreign policy in general? Oh, absolutely. I think that no country in the world has a greater impact on their foreign policy based off their domestic politics because the entire Arab world bases their foreign relations with Israel based on how Israel responds to Palestinians. And so when Israel loosens up on Palestinians and they make progress towards some sort of peace, their world expands their relations with Israel. But as Israel becomes more constricting towards Palestinians and there's more incidents and there's more clashes, their world withdraws their relations. So looking specifically at their policies, is that Netanyahu, again, is a shift to the more conservative side. And so Turkey granted recognition in August. That may be revoked. You know, looking at Iran, there was huge progress made with the Arab Accords in 2020. But looking at that now, there was potential for that to expand 
previously under Bennett and moving forward, maybe the rest of the Arab world would hop onto that train. But with Netanyahu back in power, it's looking more like he's going to try and strong arm all of the Middle East. Israel is an economic powerhouse and a military powerhouse in the Middle East. And so he's going to take more of that approach towards looking at expanding Arab relations potentially as a counterpart to the increasing threat of Iran and instability in Iran. And it's been said that up to 17,000 Gazans are entering Israel to work every day, which is great. Tons of progress and a very novel phenomenon for many Israelis and Palestinians in this area. So it'll be interesting to see if this sort of policy continues under Netanyahu. Yep. And you mentioned, Josh, coming back to that point of like the opposition to Iran by Netanyahu and also acting as like a counterweight to them. Do you think this opposition to Iran is going to attract Netanyahu, potential other Arab allies that are fearful of Iran's influence throughout the Middle East? Absolutely. That's why already countries like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE are all drawing closer to Israel. And with everything going on with the revolts in Iran and potential uprising, they're kind of an unknown. They're an X factor in the Middle East. And they're also one of the strongest nations in the Middle East. And so, again, they'll be drawing closer to Israel as some form of security, particularly as America over the last decade has gotten less and less involved. I also want to get into the like differences in the previous government's foreign policies, Bennett. So like, how much of a change are we looking at tra- transitioning from under Prime Minister Bennett previously to what potentially will be Prime Minister Netanyahu? There is a distinct change. So what's really important in looking at a transition of politics for our listeners is that when you have a change in government with domestic politics, usually there's some sort of huge change, but pretty consistently countries, their foreign policy will remain relatively stable at the end of the day. So with with that in mind, for foreign policy, it will be a large change. For example, Bennett took positions in trying to mediate the Russian-Ukrainian war, which previously under Netanyahu, Israel draws closer to Russia a lot because of their influence in the Middle East. And we're going to see a lot of withdrawal in Arab relations. Like, I would not be surprised if Turkey withdrew their recognition, if the Arab Accords regressed somewhat when we were looking at them expanding. And so a huge, huge counterpart to the Arab Accords right now is the Arab Peace Initiative, which has Saudi Arabia, Oman, and Qatar, who are all hesitant about joining the Arab Accords. And so going with this, it kind of serves as a potential threat to the Arab Accords because it's the Arab position on what the Arab Accords are trying to address (laughs) in getting recognition and official relations between Israel and the rest of the Middle East. But the Arab Peace Initiative wants to return the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and make progress towards the treatment of Palestinian refugees, whereas the Abraham Accords are mostly, we just want relations with the rest of the Arab world. And you mentioned, I just want to distinguish something for our listeners, Josh. When you're talking about the Arab Accords, you're referring to the Abraham Accords, correct? Yes. Negotiated under the Trump administration. Just wanted to clear that up. I think that's a valuable point that you bring up as maybe the Palestinian relationship becoming a slightly less of a concern as both Israeli and Iranian power grows in the region and Arab countries want to both ally with Israel, at least be in partnership with them as the threat of Iranian power grows. I also want to turn back to like what was our main focus of the episode is like, what is the effect this will be on the Palestinians with Netanyahu potentially coming to power? And you had mentioned there had been like recent clashes. Maddie, do you want to go into that at all? Of course. So 
The ongoing Palestinian situation has been dire. It's the reason for so much domestic tumult within Israel. Over 100 Palestinians have been killed in clashes with the IDF this year, which is the highest since 2015. And most notably, 29 civilians have been killed just in last October, which the UN says has been the deadliest year in civilian casualties since they started tracking fatalities. So with more Palestinian deaths come more anger and then a desire for revenge. Several proposed ideas to limit Palestinian liberty by domestic actors in the Israeli government in occupied areas will likely lead to more terrorism. So there's been a terror wave in Israel, which has been ongoing, and it's been particularly severe this year. Dozens of Israeli citizens and soldiers have been killed, many in just completely random attacks, such as one that killed five people just at a bar one night this summer in Tel Aviv. These attacks, which have not been like planned, but rather lone wolf attacks, are very terrifying. And they're making things worse because not only does every successful attack on an Israeli galvanize more terror by Palestinians, but every successful attack on an Israeli angers Israelis further and leads to kind of a, a sense of revenge. I spoke to an Israeli student who was in the IDF and he said that in Israel there's a deep sense of frustration and anger by Israeli civilians who have watched the ineffectiveness of this current domestic approach have watched their friends, their family members die, and they want change. There was a policy under Netanyahu in which basically briefcases full of cash were given to Hamas. And people see this and then see an increased amount of terrorism and they say, where is this money going? This humanitarian aid is being turned around and used for all the wrong reasons. And this student mentioned that, I think crucially, many of the right-wingers who are voting for Netanyahu are like unlike in the United States, young people. These young people are immersed in or have just left the military service and are part of this hyper-militarized environment that kind of advocates for hardline policies towards the Palestinians. Netanyahu, he supports an autonomous state for Palestine, he said before, but not a fully independent one. And it's unlikely that Palestine will gain independence because those who will be doing his bidding, the people in the military, are the ones who vote for him. So it's it's a very, very tense situation and tragic for both sides, truly. It's escalating, and as we've mentioned earlier, right now Gaza is pretty calm, but the West Bank is just a hub of terrorist activity, and it's pretty unfortunate for everyone who's involved. I know just this morning, a 19-year-old Palestinian woman was shot in her car, which according to IDF forces, accelerated at them after signaling for the car to stop, but local witnesses said that there was never a warning and there was extremely low visibility as it was before dawn. And so we see this really just black and white narrative that there's there's so little overlap because of all the prior bloodshed, which is just truly heartbreaking. Yeah, I think both you, both Josh, you and Maddie have elucidated points of this has been a devolving situation of where violence begets violence and there's a tension both when violence has been done unto you and you see no change being made to prevent those violence that therefore you are not motivated to come to any sort of agreement you're just going to respond in kind to a certain extent and so you mentioned earlier josh about like the west bank and the gaza strip and also iran is there a connection israel has constantly talked about hamas being connected to iran do you want to go into that at all yeah i mean it's very difficult to tell how much of a connection Hamas truly really has with Iran, but at the same time, 
you have to wonder with everything that we've seen, you know, historical cases always come out about how the United States, the CIA influenced this, or like the Mossad did this. Well, that was 50 years ago. And to assume that none of that's going on today is very, very difficult. So we can look at the situation and we can assume that to some extent, Israel does have influence in Iran with the revolts going on. But at the same time, Iran most definitely has some sort of fundraising for Hamas and Palestinian independent self-determination groups. I want to turn towards just a final question, just to summarize things and look towards the future. I'll address this to both of you and you guys can take turns on going through it of do you believe that Netanyahu will be able to hold on to political power for long? I think that Israel, we're not going to see a two-state solution anytime soon. And that means that we will not see peace anytime soon. I think until Netanyahu supporters are you know, convinced otherwise that a left-wing coalition is capable of creating peace and security in the state, even though this really isn't true because the rise in violent death has been attributed to Netanyahu's lax policies when it came to the Palestinian Authority. But I think until we start to see that, there's going to be a right-wing backlash, much like we've seen across the world. Netanyahu, he's a great politician. He will stay in power until A, this trial wraps up and he's convicted and thrown in jail, or B, he is voted out by a convincing coalition. And I just, with all the infighting between these kind of left-wing groups, I don't see a coalition like that forming anytime soon. Maddie, nail it perfectly. Basically, we need a stable liberal coalition, and depending on the court case, is how long he'll stay in power. Yeah, and you mentioned already went into it of how the re-election of Netanyahu will affect Palestinians specifically. Maddie, of no possible two-state solution in sight, and that seems further and further. Uh, dream or a mirage in the distance and both escalating violence and things and the backlash that could happen. Josh, do you quickly want to sum up anything else that you would say about Israel's foreign policy changing or do you think we've about covered everything there? We've covered most of it. I think the biggest differences that we're going to see is that they're going to make a much more independently interested foreign policy. Right now under liberal government, there are a lot of ways following America's lead. They're following the liberal Western world's lead. Now they're going to act in their, in their self-interest almost exclusively. Well, this has been a great discussion. Maddie, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Drew. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Patricia Sleep. Hey, Trish. Hey, Drew. How are you? I'm good. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So some of the headlines we have this week is the Iranian protests on the Southeast Flashpoint Mark Bloody Friday celebration in Kherson as Ukrainians attempt to stabilize city the city after Russian retreat. And then Brazil counted all its votes in hours and it still faces fraud claims. Some important stories to cover. Let's start with the developments with the protests in Iran. So the Iranian protests continue after the murder of 22-year-old Masha Amani. And she was killed by the morality police for the alleged improper wear of a hijab. These nationwide protests have now turned to a popular revolt speaking out against the Iranian strict dress code it has on women in the country. Thousands of people took to the streets on Friday, November 11th to mark a previous protest that happened, which is now known as Bloody Friday. This is just an increase of anti-government protests, and these are some of the largest we have ever seen throughout Iranian history, and it could increase more, so we'll just have to see how the story develops. A situation that continues to develop, as you said, and capture the attention of the world and not just within Iran. And you mentioned Herson? Yes. Herson 
celebrates its first major victory with the retreats of the Russian army. People took to the streets, waving their blue and yellow flags as the Russian army started leaving. The energy, the excitement, and the hope is filling the streets as they continue to rebuild their lives in their country. The Ukrainian police are now going around and documenting anything that, that could later be shown as war crimes and other crimes against humanities. As much as a victory for the Ukrainian, the Russians are still fortifying their battle lines on the Western Bank. And this retreat was a massive blow to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, but the war will still continue, even though this was a victory for them. Positive development for the people of Ukraine, but the war seems far from over. And you mentioned there was elections in Brazil? Yeah, the world was caught by surprise with recent Brazilian election results. However, Brazil still has issues of claimed voter fraud. However, there is no absolute evidence that there's any form of election fraud. And then the far-right president, Jar Bolsonaro, claims that there was election fraud. So it just keeps finding itself in a tricky situation because they're still counting, but there is no evidence of any election fraud. Thank you so much for coming on, Trish. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Rukulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.